Hopefully they can be of um, broad relevance. First line of the Dhammapada be can translated the mind is the forerunner of all phenomenon phenomena. How literally should one take this? Does it imply that Sangsara as we experience it is largely our own doing? So is cessation the ceasing of this doing? Broadly speaking, yes, Sangsara is our own doing. Mm. But we don't, it's not we consciously do it, but it's, uh, it's the, uh, it's not a place, it's not, it's not you know, physical existence out there, it's not that, you know, Sonoma County is Sangsara or, <laughs> or anymore, <laughs> well it probably is, but it's not, you can, you can't get away from it going, going somewhere else, <laughs> or even going into a monastery, you don't get away from it. It's essentially the endless wandering on of the mind. You know, because it's seeking that which can't find, so it's endlessly wandering on, seeking um, security and so forth, happiness and being something. So it's the release from that, uh, from karma and from what's called um, asava, which is the outflows, which is the energies of becoming that which impels us forward in time into forming some kind of entity who moves through space and time well that goes on and it never arrives it never arrives it's always moving on through space and time if you notice that it's only when space and time stop that we release from becoming and that naturally occurs in in chitta so just bearing in mind the chitta doesn't move through space or time it moves through karma and it it creates space and time as it does so Mm. so it creates time it creates the next moment what's the next moment? Because <laughs> as soon as you're there, that is that isn't the next moment. That's this moment, isn't it? <laughs> and there can't be a previous moment because what's that? That means in this moment we're experiencing a memory, and there's no next moment. It's just in this t- this moment we're anticipating or uncertain or eager for. So that that energy of, of you know, of, of, of acquisition or fear or anxiety, that energy generates time as a, as a felt experience. Now if that stops, where's... You know, how do you measure it before that stops? How do you, is there any measurement of time? <clears throat> so, as we all recognize, we can suddenly be 
affected by an event that seems to have happened years ago? How's that? Did it happen years ago? If it happened years ago, why is it happening now? So because it's got karmic potential in it, karmic potency, it's meaningful, it's impactful, the resonances are still vibrating. And so as we experience this karmic formation, the results of of being born, of being of this in is coming into birth. Uh, which again can be seen as historical, but also is just this this moment we're coming into this again and again. You know, you may think you live in a inside that visual body, but I think some of you probably have difficulties in getting in there, and only only bits of it at a time, and quite regularly whiz whiz out of it into into thoughts and ideas and memories and notions you know as we've been actually trying to get in your body takes a bit of work (laughs) and stay in it and all of it and then you realize when you get in it it's not the thing you see after all so you know it's it doesn't chitta doesn't exist in terms of a particular location though it can be we can enter it through locating places in the body that are that are vibrant or resonant or affected by these sankara these karmic formations and that's where it lives and the aim of practice is when the when the sankara are stilled and calmed and there is no place there's just a measurelessness So it's the, the mind and here the, in the Dhammapada is mano, which is the the um, mano is the says the chief, the leader uh, of of dhammas, a phenomena. Mano is the is the conceiving mind that actually kind of creates discrete qualities out of what are felt resonances. So felt resonances, and these, it's, it's really a very pretty immediate process. But what is so we're trying to uh, to encourage is going to the felt resonances before we conceive. I am stupid. I am angry. I'm annoyed. He bothers me. You know, there was the jitter experience of some kind of impact and then the mind mano wove that into a nice little package that one can store or or respond to creating creating packages creating boxes is mano's job that's the conceiving or the ending of conceiving uh, then that phenomena as such as discrete finite objects also uh, come to ceasing Mm. but that only occurs through mano is driven by chitta mano is is asked to do that 
tell me what's happening. Mm. So it's asked to do that. And so it's very much an organ of citta. This is why the Nibbana is unconceivable. And the quality of the Buddha is unconceivable. Mm. Because you, you, you can't put it in a box. It doesn't exist in space and time. So just just look at the weight of time, the pressure of it, the push of it, the drag of it, the spin of it. How there's never enough time. Or maybe there's too much time. Not enough happening just because of my you know, it's time sitting on my hands, time's on my hands. Time's on my back. Yeah. Time's ticking away. Where is this stuff? It's emotion, isn't it? If you un- really unwrap it, it's uh, bored, uncertain, pressurized. That's what it is, isn't it? So with the, this is how, for example, sangsara is, is woven. And it's, as it woven, it becomes something that wraps itself around the chitta and drives it. So it's this kind of mutual con- process of mutual conditioning, avijja pachaya sankara. So out of ignorance, the sankaras are formulated. Sankara pachaya vijnana, consciousness is then turned dependent upon those. It starts to form Nama Rupa, knowing and an object, dependent upon this whole weaving of, of uh, that Sankara does. So it's in the stilling of that. There's no name and form are said to break up. Consciousness breaks up. That, that particular constant bringing things into presence can why do you, you know why do you need something why why have something present when they you know does this mean as zero zilch or something that can't be measured and actually the you look in the, the suttas and the teachings and experiences people say there's something you can't measure it you can't you can't proliferate around it you can't abstract from it sangsara can you speak a little about the realms? I feel like I'm cycling through them on a daily basis. Sometimes hell, heaven, hungry ghost, animal, etc. So these are this, this cosmology. We have various realms of what are called realms of existence. It is a, a cosmological map, and for many of you probably aware of some of it. But you have this uh, this kind of like like uh, uh, the lower realms is hell. Of which there are many different kinds. Actually, there are hells and sub-hells. There are utterly, utterly awful hell realms, hell realms, and just kind of averagely miserable hell realms. <laughs> there are freezing cold hell realms. There are hell realms of fire, of grinding, of unending torment, of torment. You get a break from every now and then. So there's all sorts of sixteen major hells, which all have different sub-departments. So it's plenty of options there depending on what kind of skullduggery you've been up to. 
And then just above that is the hungry ghost realm, which is for the addictive types, the ones who constantly want more, more, more drink, you know, uh, food, money, whatever. So that quality, addictive hunger, never get enough. Animal realm is the realm of of just fear and bodily instinct. So it's a frightened realm. and uh, uh, you know, a realm just of what's it about eating, procreating, avoiding getting eaten by something else, <laughs> basically. And then above that, we have the um, we have the human realm, which is uh, mixed, uh, good and bad mixed. This is where the Buddha's teaching is presented. And I, I think it's, it's supposed to be in some ways the ideal one because it's you have enough wisdom to to uh, know how to get in line and enough ignorance to forget it. So <laughs> it's sort of it can swing but, it, but it's because we it's not very it's not completely happy so we get enough sense of dukkha to spur us on. And yet it's, it's, it's good enough to be able to not be in a state of total panic all the time so we can get some, the mind can be composed enough to reflect on it. And then you have the Devalokas, and they're, so sometimes there's about six of these, and they are quite fortunate places, but the snag is they're so nice you don't really want to get out of them. So you don't get necessarily want to get out of off the map because this is quite quite pleasant hanging out there and the brahma loka are more sublime and they <coughs> uh, they, they feel they are out of it where it's this wonderful spacious open luminous quality so i'm already out of it or i've got it all but they haven't so yeah the human mind is open to all these and sometimes these are equated with ethical stations so the mind that's pitched into violence and cruelty and there's a hell right mind the mind that's pitched into deprivation and constant need is a hungry ghost mind the mind that's only moored to to sensory impulse is the animal mind um, and then the deva minds are it's often associated with with joyfulness or tranquility or kindness or virtue and it refines in the brahma loka are associated with sublime meditation states jhana and so on so and certainly the human can cycle through these and i guess the look how we do the buddha is the one who knows is aware of all this and as we contemplate any of these realms really as they rise dependent upon conditions and they can also be um, re- resolved when one through skillful practice and training but the sense of having access to these and in fact some of them just happening to you, hell realms and so forth does impel a sense of urgency we are you know this this human realm can get very very ugly and very brutal and so wants to be vigilant Would you address the relationships, breakings, 
that can lead to death. Energy, how common is this? I think what the person is perhaps is aiming at is the sense of like broken heart or the deep um, grief or dissociation um, from 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 feeling uh, in communion or feeling quality of of love on all all any any of these levels. And the primary one is, I guess, safety. One feels safe, one feels heard, one feels um, the sense of harmony and communion. Um, so certainly people can, who've been in, in strong relationships can be so deeply shattered by the death of the other or the, um, that they, they just, their hearts sink and energy sinks and this leads to I think all sorts of chemicals being released and perhaps loss of appetite and they just wither away and this this can happen to people more common unfortunately is people kill themselves mm. yeah so we are the only creatures that I think we're the only creatures that kill themselves and we do it quite a lot con- considering mm. through through a sense of loss loss of being, loss of identity, life's not worth continuing, it's just too much, it's so lonely and bleak, uh, what's the point of continuing? And so the, the, the loss of meaningful, meaningful existence um, can, can trigger this. When I say meaningful, I don't mean meaningful intellectually, meaningful, some, I belong here, there I'm I'm relating, I'm felt, known, seen, I, I fit, there's, I can feel happy, I can feel, you know, the things that I say are the chitta's fundamental food, and I've called it, I've called it love, but I really don't want to be too, you know, you use, because it's love is so sort of trivialized and, and, and limited, but heart food, if we don't get the heart food of, of feeling, self-respect, steadying ourselves, comfortable with ourselves. We're always in a feeling of guilt or regret or I'm so stupid or I hate myself. You know, how long do you want to be with that? And if that's accompanied by nobody else likes me either, you know, and there's no one to talk to or share that with, gee, who wants to be with that? And So people do kill themselves. You know, in acute depression, it's it's uh, very very difficult to to keep going with that loss of emotional resonance. What one can do to avoid this? Well, basically, we have to acknowledge that in its effective sense, the chitta is effective. It's affected. It it must have some relational experience, you know, to other people or to life in general or to yourself. There's got to be something where you feel a sense of, you know, resonance, uh, interest, uh, and certainly, you know, the, there are certain, you know, really important things to say to have. One is other people. 
Kalyanamita, people who, who, the good friend who can be with you through it all, who is prepared to walk the extra mile, listen a bit more, um, give you some straight advice, not run out on you when you're down, not abandon you when you make a big mistake. So that's, that's, that's a high ideal, but at least people who can cover some of those bases to a degree is really important for Pete, for us as humans. And of course, um, access to the triple gem, what that means, not just Buddha image in your room, but the knowing, the awareness, the ability to understand conditions are like this. This is a painful condition, a pleasant condition, a skillful condition, an unskillful condition. And we've got some way in which we can steer towards the skillful because the skillful conditions they will always feed the heart they're not just about being good they are they really are heart food they're having just running this good energy through the heart you do then then of course this is how people can live alone and in solitude you know on their own they don't necessarily always have to have people around but you can live alone if this this quality of heart food is 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 strong and flowing. So this is, to live alone, you really need to know how to cultivate chitta. So you can live with other people and you don't know how to cultivate chitta. You you're still going to be in trouble because then you end up projecting all kinds of things onto them and. They don't this, and he doesn't this, and all your fears and stuff get dumped onto other people. Then, then you, you kind of lose it. So, most essential thing is this cultivation of chitta. So. <coughs> How to stay compassionate and light. We listen to friends' heavy stuff, even if I don't pick up their karma, which takes discipline. There's usually a residue in my chitta. I can only toast so much before it's too heavy. Yeah. So how, how to be able to, I guess, be with heavy stuff without um, getting weighed down by it. Just Bear in mind that you do, you're, the chitta is resonant, so it's something, I say it's, it's transpersonal, in other words, it definitely picks up and is affected by the energies, the mood swings, perceptions of other people, definitely. And yet, you know, so you can't say it's all just bound up inside a person, it's definitely very much open and affected by the presence or the absence of others. But that is an effect. It's not really somebody else. It's, you know, the perception of another person or the energy of another person or the fortunate mood of another person or the unfortunate mood of another person. Your chitta resonates with it. Now, once you've begun to really own that, my my feeling of being overwhelmed or my feeling of really getting, well, you know, upset and by this other person's sorrow, you know, just training more and more to to 
notice really what's happening in one's own heart and take own that, take responsibility for that, which means we... And then, because if it's a resonance, it will resonate and it will be felt and it will be grounded and it will pass through. That's not wanting to go away, that's just what it does. Because it's a resonance. Now, if we make that resonance into a person, either I have to, or she's in this state, then we can get overwhelmed. Now, it doesn't mean, you know, well, I ignore her, but I know, and I may indeed sense she's in deep trouble. Yeah. If I really want to help her, then I, I, it's no, it doesn't help her if I'm just getting overwhelmed by it, does it? Yeah. So I, I can stay there, sensing that, feeling that, looking into the conditions of that, and from my heart, respond. That doesn't mean I'm ignoring her, but I'm just not making that experience into a person. Do you see what I mean? Practice, in other words. <coughs> How does one practice with the body if it experiences considerable pain during the death process? Well, hmm. how does one avoid identification with the body as one becomes efficient with piti sukha? Well, essentially, it's not you don't practice with the body, experiences considerable pain, practice with pain. The, the feeling, the Vedana. And, uh, you know, this, so this is a life, lifelong exercise because we all we experience pain, I suspect, every day, some kind, discomfort, and Vedana, feeling. Uh, so practicing with painful feeling give, widening, giving it space um, breathing through it, visualizing it uh, not, want, you know, not trying to dealing with impatience and frustration and despair and terror those are, the, those are on the agenda for dealing with pain and if you practice in this life while you're not dead yet, then you've done the field work that makes it possible to to continue that as the body passes. It can often be the case that in the passing of the body, the body itself starts to, you know, generate the chemicals, or in fact, slightly, you know, um, there's a there's a sense in which the jitter starts to leave the body, and it it, it doesn't get so pinned by it. How does one avoid identification? The body becomes efficient with piti sukha, because again, piti sukha, piti is a sankara, and sukha is a feeling of vedana. So, really, what you experience as your body, if you deal with experience as it actually is, rather than how it's interpreted. So, yes, it can be interpreted throughout my entire body. There's this quality of happiness and good feeling yeah but 
the quality of pity is not a body, is it? It's a, a suffusive, vibrant energy. The quality of sukha is a feeling. Mm. And it's not the body you want to, it's the feeling you want to stop identifying. Identifying really just means, you know, grasping. Wanting more or thinking, oh, I've got this experience. I have this experience or I want more of it. That's what you work with. Identification or attachment to body is more associated with the visual sense of it, what we see and how we, you know, like it to look nice or, you know, not look beat up or not be repulsive in a sensory way. Yeah, and actually, the more one identifies with it, that you know, attaches it, chances are you you don't like it very much. The more you grasp at it, if you don't grasp it, it's really all right. It's just the sort of thing. But when you grasp it, you say, "Oh, don't like the nose. Oh dear, looks a bit fat to me. Oh dear, skinny. Oh dear, hair's gone weird. Oh dear, you know." Whereas it's a form in nature, it's just, well, there it is, you know. <laughs> so, the visual, because there's so much stuff going on about the visual appearance of bodies, isn't there? Yeah, so it's, you know, in the world. Precepts. I live on five precepts. Recently I see that I've been deluded. I've broken two precepts, forced speech and taken what's not offered. I'm full of shame, want to know what to do. Well, we undertake, we undertake to, um, we undertake to um, train ourselves and so it's an undertaking. So we undertake to train ourselves and sometimes we slip up. Yes, these aren't moral commandments. They are training guidelines that you want to use so that you can contemplate what's happening in, in, the, in the chitta, the, the rising out, the, the picking up of intentions. And you you know, it's, it's happening so much, so quickly, that sometimes things just slip out. And sometimes, actually, you know you're telling a lie, but it seems kind of the best thing to do, or the, the easiest thing to do, saying something that isn't quite true, or one exaggerates. That's quite common, exaggerate. So, just looking into into the intention, and and what that's about that's very helpful shame is helpful to a degree you recognize this is to be taken carefully otherwise you get into this difficult mental state better than being shameless but it's just there as a as a reminder as a rap on the knuckles and you go okay what is that about and you look into 
what uh, what triggered that, if you can, or at least you firm up the intention to be more vigilant, and that's considered skillful. So the saying is, we consider it great, great progress to understand a transgression. And then you see what if there's something you can damage has been done, then maybe you need to make some efforts to repair the damage with goodwill. How can one skillfully address situations involving abuse without objectifying people? So if people have abused me, um, and I guess they, people do, don't they? In various ways, verbally, physically, talk behind your back, um, misrepresent you to others, heap scorn upon Yeah, you know, pretty nasty creatures we can be. So how do you not objectify them? Well, again, you go to the, the feeling, the emotion, the hurt, where it sticks, the arrow sticks in the heart, and you just go to that, and you know, just let the image of the person soften and dissolve, and go to to the hurt feeling. Open to that. Let the jitter respond to that. Because it isn't the person that, that abuses you, really it's, um, it's an action that abuses you. Um, so sometimes when you have people you, who you find really difficult, it's good to con- think about them, think about them sleeping, think about them getting sick, think about them with their kids, think about them walking the dog. No, think about them when they're not being abusive. And it helps to just loosen up the the stereotype, the caricature that one has of them. Otherwise, every time you see this person, you, you get the same hit in the heart. And often, practice like sharing, I, I generally share share merit with uh, difficult people I have difficulties with. It helps to to um, change my attitudes. They're teaching me to be patient. They're teaching me to to bear with feeling, they're teaching me to understand feeling, they're teaching me about unskillful conditions they're manifesting, they're asked, they're in a way telling me to, do I do this? Do I ever do this? You know, so there's a lot there we can in fact eventually become almost grateful for because they do, um, they do, they do require you to bring forth considerable resources. And the most important thing is that, you know, others may abuse you, you don't have much say over it, but you do have say on whether you abuse others. So that's the most important thing. If others are abusing you, they are generating unskillful karma. As long as you're not a that's not pleasant. But if you're abusing others, that's much worse. <laughs> so even if people are abusive to you, okay. 
she's experiencing difficult conditions. Pause. What is the difference between good, good, bad, skillful, unskillful? Not much, really. They're just different words to express the same, roughly the same thing. Let's have a look. Anything else that might be universal help? Hmm. Is one cultivating the chitta when one focuses the, the attention on the sound of silence? If not, then what is a useful or optimal role for sound of silence in one's practice? Anytime you focus attention, then you're definitely doing something to your chitta, because the chitta is that which attends. You know, it, it, it's sort of it's the intention to focus. And then the focusing organ is, is the conceiving mind, but the intention to form a focus arises from the chitta. That's an intention to, to direct oneself towards something because we like it or because we have to deal with it or because it's recommended. So that, that intention is what steers attention. So anytime you deliberately focus, you're doing something to your chitta and then you have to consider there's so many things you could turn your attention towards what is useful, what's appropriate, what's helpful at this particular time. So that's, that's wisdom. And knowing, sensing that. So the sound of silence is a kind of, is a nimitta or a derived experience that occurs through, it's the sound of listening, you could say, there's another way of putting it that when you listen to the listening sense, listening to the auditory sense without any behind the sounds. So there's the sounds and then there's the listening, right? And you can know you're listening to the sound, sound of people's voices, sound of your thoughts, inner sound, chit-chat. And then you just more and more deeply attend to the quality of listening. So the listening itself manifests a kind of uh, like a like a subtle sensed resonance. This um, Ajahn Sumedha talks about this a lot. It was a big thing for him, um, particularly dealing with um, strong thinking, emotionally charged thinking, turbulent thinking, where he just go into that and this ranting thoughts would go through. And instead of getting caught with them or trying to push them away, just deepening the quality of listening. So that that's that's the the origin of that, I believe, in his story, his uh, stories. And he used to do this a lot. Particularly, used to do it a lot at, at um, committee meetings because I watch him <laughs> do it. <laughs> you go into this kind of state. So he could be there. He didn't like committee meetings, so slight, slightly <laughs> aversive intention. It's just like, just have to be here listening, but don't really want to get all the kind of details of what's going on. So just be the listening. Then he could be there, and something would catch his attention. He'd, oh, and then he'd give directed attention to that particular point. It was like he'd kind of go back into a slightly, you know, 
slightly withdrawn mode and let the stuff run through in one particular point to focus on it come forward and he'd pick it up but generally there was nothing he wanted to listen to it's just a <laughs> and I, I think it's also he found it helpful doing his own in a in a chit in a chatter so he do it quite a lot because it's um you know very lot of stuff going on mm. I think one of the qualities of it is it, it takes one away from the impact of mental feeling, the churning, the emotional impact of things. It takes you takes you off that. Um, so then, if one then one feels less impacted by experience, it gives you a lot of space. That can be helpful when you don't you feel you're just getting overwhelmed. Mm. So it does kind of fit into what I've called open awareness, just that off off the off the track, off the topic. Yeah. Personally, I feel there's also uh, quite an important thing to actually get on the topic and sense it and and take that to to um, to f- cessation. There are other there are other phenomena that can arise of a similar nature. Um, there's a subtle luminosity that can occur through wit- watching the seeing, just like listening to the listening to the listening. You, if you look, it's more difficult because seeing is much more intrusive. But uh, particularly on retreats, when you've developed a lot of attentiveness, it's like you can see the visual form and there's a sort of a you notice how when your mind is more refined things look much more beautiful much more poignant much more vibrant mm-hmm. because the seeing quality of consciousness has been has been cleared and cleaned and and the energy of it is more upgraded so things have got a certain sparkle to them now, it can be the case that one can just contemplate or sense that that subtle visual sense, mm. the hearing, seeing, mm. and in terms of body, feeling the body in the body is about you know, experiencing resonances and energies. Dealing with grief, one has lost the mother, another significant person. So, yeah, it's a long process because this is human beings have this uh, chitta that that um, experiences strong emotion and strong bonding to other other humans, and it can, even towards our pets. So then, when that they die, as they will, then there can be a sense of the chitta rocks because it's been bonded to that. 
they so just kind of feel lost and disoriented. And that's that's the way it is. And I think one of the things that to caution against is the idea of just get over it. Because you don't get over things. You uh, come to terms with the, the feeling and the sankara, the resonance of loss. And you uh, experience that, allow that. But what is probably useful to do most significantly is is not to to go on the topic continually. I've noticed people just go back to, but my husband left me, but my husband left me, but he left me, yeah, 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 you know. I know it was bad, it wasn't good, but that, just going back to the same thing, you keep re-traumatizing that experience. And if you want, really want to, you know, release that, then you just got to go to the felt sense of it, the hurt, the loss, whatever's there. And, you know, the embodied sense is able to, if it's cultivated, is able to receive the impact of that and take pass it, take it through. It doesn't happen in a moment. It may take weeks, months, as different waves of that come through. These things don't just switch off like that. So traditionally, one was always allowed uh, a period of time, mourning time. So at least six months full mourning was considered the normal cultural norm. It means you wear black. It's an indication of, don't expect me to be normal, chatty, conversational, social. I'm, I'm in process. And then maybe a year of what they call half mourning. Um, where you gain the idea, the signs are out, you know, the shutters are down, I'm needing some solace, I'm needing some company, don't expect me to be out there having fun and games, I'm just not, you know, I'm going through a process. That seemed culturally very sane, very sensible. And then, you know, then we can, oh, she's in mourning, let's just go steady here, company, um, you know, proper response. And certainly for the beloved one, just to even have their picture on a shrine, and every day, this is for you, mum, this is for you, whatever good I've done is for you, plant a tree, this is for you, when you do a good deed, do this good deed, this is for you. So this sense of being able to keep loving, you know, this opening the heart, which is so necessary for us as as chittas, is to keep that heart opening. And when you get the sense of loss, it clamps shut. We don't want that feeling, and it shuts. And then if but it stays shut, you just get depressed. Right? Because the shut heart is depressed. And naturally, yeah, that happens, but you don't want it to just get stuck there. So it's important to bring forth, and particularly the, the loving heart can still extend towards the the one, the departed one. So in Buddhist cultures, generally they have uh, a kind of a some kind of commemoration after a week, where maybe you do skillful deeds, you make offerings, you go to a monastery or something, and says this is for my mother, my wife, my husband, my son, whatever, and you do that, and then you do it again, fifty days, hundred days, every year, and this is very normal in monasteries, as people are always coming 
making offerings on behalf of their departed relatives just because it doesn't switch off like that um, but those things do do help you know, because in the presence of that perception of the departed one still the loving heart can open and feel that tender energy running through that's that's the healer it's, that's what heals not getting over it <laughs> Uh, to develop equanimity by intrude, while also being true, true to one's feelings of sadness, happiness, even though these feelings are temporary. Well, um, yeah. I suppose just to widen, so equanimity is a very wide emotional space, being able to be with um, the movement and recognize where there's happiness there must be unhappiness where there's the, mo- the waves of it you know, we live in the world of laughter and tears So the more there can be that capacity to experience these these strong resonances, to be able to ground, to feel ground, to feel safe, to feel earth, to feel loving, to feel open-hearted in the presence of these strong resonances, then the more the quality of equanimity becomes available. It's certainly not indifference. It means feeling can be felt and you stay steady and open. You don't lose heart, you don't lose balance. So that's to be developed and naturally begins with small things, you know, like my coffee was cold this morning. Rises, passes. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there we go, done it cracked it uh, <laughs> yeah, the disappointments the minor inconveniences the failures the traffic jams the burst tire the headache you know and okay there's this now this too will change it's conditioned caused originated it will pass and uh, just to generate or come to that emotional space which can uh, truly understand and practice this Let's take a break and uh, thank you.